Welcome to the Zulu Time podcast, a straight talking conversation between two watch enthusiasts about the world of military watches. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Zulu Time podcast with your host Dan from at timely underscore moments. So um, I am not um, fueled by rum today. Uh, I'm completely sober. However, I've had a bit of a, a long a long working day, so I will probably end up rambling a little bit as per. However, um, we're continuing with the Zulu Time podcast collector interview series, um, and I've managed to coerce a friend on, um, as I always coerce friends onto this podcast to talk about watches. Uh, and today we're joined by uh, James, who runs uh, Just Two Ticks on Instagram and uh, a blog on WordPress by the same name. Um, a little bit of background, I met James a few years ago um, at a Bremont Townhouse event um, and I believe it was the event where the Her, Her Majesty's Armed Forces line, the HMAF line, was actually released um, and that event was in Clerkenwell Green, if I remember rightly. Um, it was a really good event, it was my first big Bremont Townhouse event and I didn't really know what was happening. Um, all I remember was that there was loads of watches, there was free alcohol, there was live music towards the end um, and just a really good friendly atmosphere and uh, it just proved to me that Bremont know how to put on a good uh, a good shindig and a good a good event as it were uh, and um, I believe um, obviously um, that is something that we've been missing in the you know the era of Covid. Um, watch um, events haven't been happening um, and also since that initial watch event, me and James have met up at uh, Bremont ADs um, for predominantly, um, as well as other watch events such as World Time, um, which is held in Heathrow, um, which actually, whilst I have that on my mind, for those who aren't aware of World Time in Heathrow, uh, that should be going ahead uh, in September this year it was postponed due to covid um but they've managed to retain the booking and as far as i'm aware that event is going ahead um i will probably coerce another friend of mine to come on to the podcast and talk about world time and that event as well closer to the time uh but without further ado james welcome to the podcast how are you hey i'm good thanks thanks for having me on um looking forward to it so uh yeah good good memories there from um <laughs> as you say meeting up at the townhouse that first time yeah uh it was a long time ago i was younger i'm pretty much i'm pretty sure i had less gray hair uh and i'm sure you did as well um not the same <laughs> um but anyway um on the subject of watches james uh what watch are you wearing today so today i've been wearing my um Tudor Black Bay 58, which is a great little watch. Um, something I've had for a little while now. I was lucky enough to pick one up not too long after they were released. Um, and I'm wearing it on a leather strap um, that I picked up from a guy I met through a WhatsApp group who makes handmade straps out in Canada, I believe. Um, really nice bespoke strap made for it. And um, yeah, it's a great little watch. Just nice, classic, little, simple piece. Nice, nice. I remember you showed it to me actually at World Time. There you go. Another plug for that. And mm -hmm. um, I was 
pleasantly surprised with it because I didn't personally get on well with the 41 mil black bears. I think they're a little bit too slab sided and a little bit high for, for, for me. Um, but as you know, with the 39 millimeter, the dimensions are a lot smaller and it, it wore a lot nicer for me. Um, is there a reason you got it on a leather strap? Um, is it because the, you know, for example, I know that the bracelet hasn't got the extension like on the Rolex um, oyster bracelets. Has that been a, a factor to why you don't wear it on the bracelet? Um, I sort of vary it between the two, to be honest. I think um, I have it on the bracelet at times and I, I also really like the look of it on a leather strap. Mm -hmm. um, I think it sort of, plays nicely with the look of the watch gives you that you know that variance to the look and feel and i got a nice um tudor um deployant clasp as well um sort of to go with that leather strap so uh it's just a bit of a you know varying it up basically nice nice um on the subject of tudor what do you think of the latest releases have you seen them um i've seen a little bit of them yeah i'm Tudor's a bit of a weird brand for me. I think, like you say, a lot of the sort of the, the older Black Bays are quite chunky beasts. Hmm. Um, I wasn't hugely impressed with the Black Bay Black Bay Blue. Um, I've seen it in person and I'm just sort of like, yeah, it's a blue watch. I don't understand what the hype was about that. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's nice enough, but it, it just seemed to get sort of really, you know, sort of lots of lots and lots of hype and somewhat unnecessarily. But looking at some of the new releases, I think... Um, the ceramic one is quite interesting. That's one of the new ones, isn't it? I think the black ceramic um, piece that they've brought out fairly recently. I quite like that because I like black watches um, mm. quite a lot, although I don't really have that many in my collection. But I am quite keen on them. I've got a few, I suppose. Um, but I haven't looked to the release base, to be honest. There was the chronographs, I think, wasn't there, which reminded me a little bit of um, the old 1C, I guess. Yeah, I saw the chronographs. See, I, I you, I, yeah, I can see where you get the Alt One C in terms of the dial layout. I can see that, um, but I, I just looked at it and thought it was, like I said, it like a two registered version of a Daytona, which is effectively what it is. Um, they look very nice, mm. but would I go out and buy one? Probably not. Um, the release that I am interested in seeing on a military watch side is this new collaboration that they've announced but not announced the watch is that they are doing a collaboration with marine national again oh, okay so obviously i don't know what that means uh, is it just going to be a black bay you know 58 on a erica's original strap who knows um but <laughs> you know i mean that that is the logical answer however it'd be interesting to see what they bring out for this collaboration um yeah That'd be interesting for sure. I think, um, yeah, as you say, generally as a brand, there's a lot, they've got a lot of watches I quite like, but not enough to buy. I think the Black Bay 58 just stands out a little bit for me as a bit different. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, 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 like you say, it's not it's not the chunk that a lot of their other watches are. Yeah, I, I saw a really good video on uh, Crafted and Tailored which is a really good vintage watch, like YouTube channel and vintage watch dealer in America. And he was reviewing a original Rolex Big Crown. And mm. he was saying how, obviously he spoke obviously very passionate about this Rolex, but then he stopped talking about the Rolex and brought into shot the, the Black Bay 58 and basically said, 
there's also a reason why I love the Black Bay 58 is because it's everything that I want in a watch because I like vintage divers, but I don't want to wear effectively half a million dollars on my wrist and then also have, the, <laughs> you know, and have the worry of breaking it and not being able to find replacement parts. So I wear a Black Bay 58 because it has everything that I like, but it's modern. Um, and that's what I like about the mm. 58 and, and your version in particular. I don't like the blue 58. I do like the original black one because I like the gilt hands and I like, you know, I like how it looks. I think that's if, if I was to go out and buy a Tudor tomorrow, I would s- swing towards the, uh, the Black Bay 58 in black. Um, so it's, it's great value for money as a watch if you look at it on paper, right? Mm. I mean, it's in-house Tudor movement specifically designed for this watch. So it's not just one you're inheriting like, you know, from the other ranges. It, it, it's actually, I mean, the bracelet's got a few bits on it where people sort of sort of give it a bit of a dig. But actually on paper, it's a damn good value for money piece. Um, I did also see there they've got the silver version that they've just brought out, which yeah. is an interesting concepts and i've seen a few videos on youtube where people have been seeing the silver tarnish a bit yeah which um i've, I've heard of that as well and i did some I, I did some loose research on this i spoke to someone and i can't remember who it was but they've got some background to do with uh, obviously the the sea and they basically said that it's weird that tudor decided to go with a metal that tarnishes in salt water so (laughs) yeah 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 it doesn't make much sense from a dive watch perspective it's quite a nice looking watch but i think yeah there's a bit of a it's a bit high maintenance bait maybe yeah (laughs) yeah definitely but i also saw it as a you know like um with rolex where you get a precious metal rolex in white gold or platinum but for on the naked eye if you don't know what you're looking at it's a steel watch the way i looked at it was it's tudor's version of that where you know you've got a silver you know watch basically uh and to the naked eye it's just a stainless steel watch so i don't know mm. maybe it was something to do with that but anyway yeah. um that's tudor um i i like the the 58 you know um, like i said I, I i've held yours i've tried yours on uh and it would be one that i would happily add to my collection um so yeah, there you go. Um, on my wrist, I decided to go a little bit uh, traditional in terms of how we met. Um, I have my Bremont Solo on today. Um, so my, I've not worn this watch for a while. Because um, obviously, as we know, um, I've got a massive affliction with uh, special project watches. Um, and uh, it's just in the rotation. So it happens to be the one that I'm wearing today. Um, but it is um, the first watch of the project that I actually do lead. Um, I'm not going to make any bare bones about that anymore. Um, I, you know, I'm a project leader. It is my watch. Um, I designed the, uh, you know, the elements on the dial that commemorate what I do in the military. Um, and it always makes me smile when I, when I wear it and, you know, when I get to show it to people who notice it, you know, it's, it's really mm. cool. So, yeah, yeah well, so, I think it was um, possibly your induction piece to me, I think, when we were chatting at... Um at the townhouse that first that first time then you you were right when you in your intro which was it was when they launched the hmaf range Mm -hmm. and they'd also launched the new s2000 i think yes i remember a bunch of the solo 34 i think was possibly released at that time as well Mm. yeah i i I still like it was a very good event i i enjoyed it um i i really like the hmaf line um obviously because being in the military 
and I can also now say that I own obviously a model in the HMAF line. So I, I obviously have the, uh, the Bramont Broadsword. Again, it's a special project version, um, but it's again, it's such a nice watch to wear. Um, and it's, it's just mm -hmm. easy easy to wear and I think that's the good thing about Bremont in general is the fact that you know if, if they're wound and set you know they are genuinely very easy watches to wear even though the majority of them are on the larger size uh mm. being at being at 43 mil um but I you know I wish I had the risk to pull off an S2000 because I don't think on it I can pull off a 45 mil dive watch um, <laughs> as as a daily watch anyway so that said though the S2000 wears surprisingly small mm for its size because the lugs curve down around the wrist and the strap goes with it. Yeah. It actually doesn't wear like a 45 to me. No, I, I can, I can see that as well. Um, but I would want to wear it on the bracelet. And obviously I think the added weight would make me realize it's a 45 millimeter watch, which is where, <laughs> where it comes into it. But also the other side of it is the case profiles are quite high, aren't they? They are, they are mm. like, ho they are like hockey pucks on the wrist. So yeah. Um, mm. So yeah, but either way, very nice watches. I I I I know that I can hear some of the uh, the, the regular listeners now just shouting at, the, at their their phones, listening to this, just telling me to get into the gym and get bigger wrists. So um, I will work on getting <laughs> bigger wrists, guys. Um, Need to eat a bit more as well. Yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> um, anyway, so James, uh, we've, we've obviously we've spoken about how we met. Um, but obviously it's your time now to have a bit of an introduction to, to yourself as a human being, I guess. And what, what do you do? Um, and then obviously also we'll roll into that with what's got you into watches. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. So um, very dull career wise, unfortunately, I work in the financial services industry and I'm um, a CIO of a business. Um, so look after you know, all the sort of software and IT infrastructure that goes behind that. Um, that said, as a sort of aside from my sort of working career, I've always had a strong sort of interest in the military, um, sort of various operations and campaigns and what have you, particularly on the aviation side of things. Um, and I think for as long as I can remember, I've always sort of sort of been interested in watches from quite a young age, I remember sort of like scrolling through or flicking through the Argos catalogue, looking at all the different watches that they had available when I was a kid and stuff, and just sort of having my mind boggled by some of the complex designs of the dials and chronographs and what have you. Um, and I think my first sort of, I had G-Shocks as a kid, mostly, um, a couple of G-Shocks, which I sadly don't have anymore. Um, and then uh, in about, 2001 something like that i'd sort of plucked up the courage to settle on a tso um for 300 and something pounds which i thought was a mind-boggling amount of money at the time um for a watch it took me ages to settle on the one that i wanted and it was a prc 200 which is a quartz chrono uh, with a blue dial on a bracelet which i wore for a long time as a sort of one watch guy <laughs> thing if you like that was my sort of daily wearer uh, which i still have in my collection although it needs a new battery at the moment um so always had a sort of an affinity to watches um the aviation link, I suppose, is the thing that got me into watch collecting. Yeah. So I am um, in um, 
my spare time is doing an awful lot of photography and particularly vintage aviation photography, mostly at um, sort of air shows. Yeah. And um, spent quite a lot of time at Duxford Airside, um, as well as sort of Crowdside doing photography for their events. And I was at a Flying Legends event, stood in the hangar talking to a couple of the engineers that were looking after a Sopwith Snipe, which is an old World War I um, biplane fighter uh being amused at quite how much oil falls out of the thing when it's not yeah. running. um quite a lot of oil falls out of it when it is running as well but it particularly um oily beast uh when it's sitting there sort of standing by and um the pilot who was displaying it uh jean munn walked in with uh giles english okay um who immediately introduced himself to everybody stood near the aeroplane like you know no no obligation to whatsoever walked around hi i'm giles um introduced himself to everybody and they had a, a tent basically uh, um flying legends a bremont tent um and we had to do some pictures of the tent at the event for sort of the post event uh sort of coverage because uh, uh, a friend of mine was also doing the event from a photography perspective so i was a uh stooge customer if you like so i put down all the camera gear and took my badge off and was pretending to try on well not pretending to but trying on watches and pretending to be sort of looking at buying them i think it was from that really that sort of got me into it I subsequently saw a local boutique um in the town where i live was selling um Bremont watches as an ad um, yeah. So I went in and tried a few on um, and sort of fell in love with uh, the ALT-1P, which mm -hmm. is a sort of pilot's chronograph, as you know. Um, but for those that aren't entirely aware, so it's the original version that has the internal uh, sort of rotating bezel. Mm -hmm. And that was my first big watch purchase, I guess. And then it all went downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, sort of got into the collecting gigs, sort of started yeah. seeing other watch watches out there on the market. And, um, and now I have too many watches, that's for sure. Um, but I tend not to be driven by buying based on sort of, you, you get it a lot with Instagram and stuff, a lot of influence of, of yeah. hype and what have you. I tend to not buy like that. So I've not, I think I've, maybe i've passed on one watch from all the watches mm -hmm. I've, I've purchased as part of my collecting mm -hmm. um, which i actually gave away to someone as a bit of a sort of you know gifted it to them which was an old vintage timex marlin oh yeah um i just never got around to wearing it and um yeah so i do have too many watches but i don't really feel inclined to sell any of them because i quite like them all a lot for you know what they have to offer but well yeah that, that, that's a positive you're probably one of the only people who i've interviewed on the podcast who doesn't have um buyer's remorse on attached to any of their watches because you get that a lot don't you in mm. pe with people who have a large collection there's always that buyer's remorse attached to one or two watches and it's always a oh i'll, I'll shift that one on because you know I, I probably didn't need it you know um it's interesting that your collection because i know your collection is quite varied 
you know, that you you are content with all of them for different reasons. Whereas there have been a few people who I've interviewed or not interviewed and just know through obviously the wider watch community and they're just like, yeah, I, I shouldn't have bought that. And you know, they have massive buyer's remorse <laughs> attached to it. So yeah, I think I think it's partly the kind of you know the watch fam, as it were, the the, the whole Instagram influencing thing kind of plays a part in that. And you know, some people are more susceptible to it than the others. And it's not to say that I'm not susceptible to it. I've certainly looked at watches and thought, oh, I, I quite like one of those, but then never really pulled the trigger on one. Um, so usually, I mean, obviously, I've got a few Bremonts. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, you know, I could probably be quite squarely accused of being a bit of a Bremont fanboy. Um, Mm -hmm. I think uh, that's no real secret if anybody sort of followed me on Instagram. I've got a few of their pieces and I love them all. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, they are very good watches. Mm. Yeah, and I've got a bit of a sort of varied bunch from them. I've actually got one of the the HMAF. uh, I've got the Argonaut, Mm -hmm. which um, my other half kindly purchase for me as a present which oh, is very nice of her indeed um so, so i've got the argonaut which is a cool piece um i have the u2 jet which mm-hmm. was um, introduced at a prior townhouse to the one that we met at and i actually yeah. placed a deposit on the day for one mm-hmm. <laughs> so i got one of the early ones of those i've got an alt 1c polished black so that's slightly dressy yeah um obviously i've got the alt 1p and I have um, a limited edition of theirs, which is this uh, boutique limited edition. So mm-hmm. they don't really advertise it. It's not on the website. It's something that they just have in some of the boutiques. And I was in New York on holiday and uh, went to their New York um, boutique and uh, as a sort of memento, ended up picking up this one in 50. It's number 35, I think. Um, of the boutique limited edition which is quite nice so um yeah all of those at the price point that bremont are an option and some people give them a bit of a hard time over that i think the quality of the build and the passion behind it and the investment that the business is then making back into watchmaking in the UK, in my mind, justifies that. And the quality of the, the, you know, the way they build the cases and do all the the stuff that they do do in house. Mm -hmm. um, I think absolutely makes sense. I think there's an awful lot of stuff as far as I can tell that other brands ship out Mm -hmm. (laughs) to out of house manufacturers. And I think that the investment that goes into stuff that, as you know, like building their own movement, building up the big sort of center of British watchmaking, the new wing that they've introduced and what have you, and all that equipment that they have to purchase, you know, there is an element of the machining sort of manpower and man time that goes into that stuff. They're not a big company either, as you well know, you know, they only turn out something like 8,000 watches a year. Is it something like that? Yeah. Um, Not that many watchmakers. So, I feel perfectly happy with the price point, but at that price point, you still have to, you know, be happy with your purchasing decision. Yeah, of course, because at the end of the day, you're still throwing down, you know, um, above what three and a half grand and up for, for most of the watches uh, in, in Bremont's collection. You know, comparatively, I know they do go down to, you know, the the two eight probably figure off the top of my head, but you're still, you know, it's a sizable amount of money for anyone to drop on a watch. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of um, 
you do occasionally spot the odd deal where an ad mm -hmm. has got something they're clearing because it's been sat with them for too long so it's you know as good as brand new but you get it for a pretty decent deal so you can actually get some quite good deals on a brand new watch from them mm -hmm. um but yeah as you say it's not it's not it's still not an insignificant amount of money to drop on a watch for sure no definitely not um so i mean you've obviously we've already spoken about bremont there um we'll, we'll we'll stay with it for a little bit longer uh, what do you think of obviously their new their new move to that new um actual building that's obviously been as far as i'm aware and from what i've seen because i'd like to just throw it out there i've not visited it yet um the plan is to hopefully visit it the end of the month i've had an invite as a project leader to go and have a look around which is quite cool and, and be hosted by the special projects team but um what do you think of their move from obviously where they originally were in henley on thames to obviously where they are now in um i think it's just outside reading um but you know what I mean, um, in their new actual, you know, um, building that's been made specifically to obviously turn out watches. Um. I think um, looking at it from a sort of business perspective, it makes massive for them. So yeah. they obviously had the HQ where they had it, um, pretty small set of buildings with sort of limited room for growth to the point mm -hmm. where, you know, they started having porter cabins stacking up outside and the marketing team are on a different site altogether so i think bringing them all together under one roof so that they can operate as a team bringing the manufacturing into the same shop i think makes you know really really good sense and i think for them to be able to a they've got a boutique in in this place um so they've got a sort of non-town center boutique that's one of their own anymore which is quite good so I don't live too far away from where the new building is. Mm -hmm. So that that might be a dangerous thing <laughs> financially, having a boutique mm. so close to home. Um, but I think, yeah, bringing it all together under one roof has got to give them some good efficiencies. It gives them some good room for growth. And um, I think, you know, as they're working towards their new fully in-house movement and all the rest of it, it will just bring that sort of whole production line together for them i think um it's obviously a huge investment for them so you know you, you've seen a few headlines about it being a big gamble and all the rest of it but clearly nick and giles are very very passionate about yeah what they're doing and british watchmaking and i've sort of sat down and spoken to both of them i had a tour of the original hq nick invited me i was chatting to him at um, another ducksford event a subsequent one and he was like oh yeah you must come and have a look around and i was yeah. sort of had a exchanged a few e e emails with him and um expected to turn up and there'd be a group of four or five of us and it was just me and him oh nice <laughs> so we had a sit down and a coffee in the boardroom just me and nick having a chat and um then he took me around you know to see the service center where the sort of um watchmakers look at doing servicing and repair mm -hmm. the little apprentices corner where they were learning about watchmaking yeah. and sort of building various pieces to learn the craft and then the testing abilities that they had there all in such a small space um and i got to meet the guy who built my u2 jet that's very <laughs> cool i looked it up and I was, it's that guy oh hi there you built my watch thanks very much yeah. um so you know i quite like that about them as well is that then they're, they're quite a small business they're not you know when you're one of their customers like you know you get invited to um sort of events they do at their boutiques and stuff where i mm -hmm. got to go and see nims die um yeah 
talking about his experiences. I got to go and see Brian Wood talking about um, his experiences as, as um, he brought his sort of book out and had uh, his, he was sort of sort of the named ambassador for one of the HMAF watches, I think from recollection. Um, you was. get invited to stuff like that. You don't really see that from other brands. You don't get the same feeling of, mm-hmm. you feel more than a customer in, in some way. I don't know if you kind of get that. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. It, it's like you said, you, you, you are made to feel like you've, you have joined the club, uh, you know, um, and you're treated as an individual. You're not, you know, like you said, thank you for your X amount of thousands of pounds. Here's a watch, fuck off kind of thing. Um, I've never mm-hmm. had a, a negative experience at either an event or, like I said, engaging with uh, my my uh, point of contact within within the Bremont military uh, team. Uh, and like I said, you know, admittedly, my experience is a little bit different from you in that regard. Um, but, you know, going into yeah. the ADs, I've never had a problem. If anything, um, I've been to enough events now um, that the ADs know who I am as well when I go in sometimes, <laughs> you know, it, particularly um, particularly Cameron uh, at um, the Mayfair Boutique and then uh, Ashley down at the uh, Canary Wharf Boutique. You know, uh, I, I've spent a few uh, hours in there uh, talking about uh, watches and not just obviously Bramont, they're quite happy to talk about what the watch, um, you know, industry in general. Um, mm. And then obviously, like you said, you know, over a coffee or, or, or sometimes a whiskey and, and, and talk about that. And they've always been welcoming and, you know, um, and like I said, can't do anything more for you when you when you're in there, which is always good. Yeah, I think I can I can reflect that as well. So from the non-military side, from just being a consumer side of things, you know, I walked into, I dropped into the Mayfair boutique. I went into London to see what it was like after the plague. You know, and people mm-hmm. are gradually coming back to to using town again. And I I dropped mm-hmm. into the Mayfair boutique, and Rudy was in there. It's like, oh, how's it going? Saw Cameron. You know, yeah. they all kind of they get to know you. I mean, obviously there's some art to that from a sales perspective, but of course. you know they also have very good recall about stuff you've talked to them about before. They know which watches you have, they know what your tastes are. They'll talk to you about, you know, things they're hoping to achieve watch wise mm-hmm. not the rest of it. I think it's, it's really nice sort of, um, you know, the, the, they'll sort of make an effort to build a relationship with you. Yeah. Yeah. And it obviously it's, it, you know, I, I've no, only ever had that kind of that level of um, engagement, shall we say uh, within an AED, um slash on the high street at one other place and that is just so happens is because the the gentleman in question is actually um a very, very you know big watch guy himself and um he's mm. actually been on the uh, the podcast as a as a guest talking about watches uh in terms of his experience in working in the industry um but like i said i think that's uh you know a one-off in terms of just walking into a uh, a chain um you know watch watch uh, ad as it were uh, we won't name the brand because i can't, i don't remember if he named it but you know it's a very obvious one beginning with a g um so <laughs> you know you know what i mean so you know it's it's one of those when and i think like you said it is there's an art to it but evil even so uh and knowing full well there's an art to it it still makes you feel pretty good uh when you go in there um other than obviously the Bremonts yeah. that you've you've highlighted within your your collection, uh, what other standout watches that you have you got at the moment? I know you've recently taken delivery of a new watch as well. 
Um, yeah, so recently I picked up a um, Glycine Airman number one reissue, uh, which is a limited edition that they ran, um, I think last year or the year before, mm -hmm. uh, of a thousand pieces, which is, um, it has, it's very faithful reissue, so it's 36 mil. Um, it's a GMT with nice. a 24 hour um, bi-directional bezel on it so that you've got three time zones you can essentially track on it um it's just that very classic old glycine piece mm -hmm. without the difficulty in getting it repaired um finding parts for it and worrying about it sort of disintegrating <laughs> at some point um which I've always sort of had my eye on 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 the glycine pieces for, of of the older sort of uh, variety particularly, and this one just happened to jump up at me. I know um, I, I got it from a, a contact that I knew who she used to work at Bremont actually. Funny enough, and mm -hmm. I um, sort of got to know her through Instagram and then met her at one of the uh, boutique events. Um, yeah, it just popped up on there really, and I was just like, "Oh, that's that's very nice." So we got chatting about it and asked a few questions, and I thought, "Why not?" So there's that one, um, which is a very nice piece. Um, standout pieces: we've got a couple of vintage bits. I have a very sort of small vintage collection um, of uh, one which stands out particularly, which is my great grandfather's watch. It was bought for him for a birthday present. And purchased in 1952 by my great aunt, who's um, sadly no longer with us. But I still have the A4 um, typewriter typed uh, receipt from the jeweler that she bought it from for him. The original box and the original service warranty manual. Um, and it's a small seconds Amiga. Um, I guess it's a sort of precursor to the early Seamasters, I guess. Um, sort of prior to that sort of naming convention really coming out um, that I had um, sort of serviced. They sort of did a little bit of gentle polishing on the case, but left the dial as it was um, and replaced the uh, crystal because it was, it had had it, it, you know, it was, it was beyond patina and into the world of illegible. Mm. Um, so so i had that replaced so that's that's a sort of got a special place in my collection i guess because it's sort of like a link to um man i never met unfortunately but um mm -hmm. you know it's a family thing that's sort of been handed down yeah and uh, you also wrote a very cool article so guys we obviously alluded to earlier and and james will talk about it later on because i'm going to make him is obviously uh we'll mention the, the 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 just two ticks blog but um one of the articles you've actually written is about that that watch and that inspired me to write an article on your blog as well about uh, my father's amiga so right, yeah. um it's a very cool article. We, I won't go in, and I don't think James will go into too much into it other than he already has. So I implore you to go and read it. Um, mm. But you're right. It's a very cool watch. I like, it's interesting that you have the the box and the receipt because, you know, the generation that, that was bought, keeping the boxes and receipts for watches, but then just didn't seem to be a thing. Like I spoke to my father about, you know, I mean, he bought his later on, you know, he bought it uh, in the late sixties um uh out in germany and um i turned around to him and said did you ever you know what happened to the box and the and and the you know the papers the receipt and he just turned around to me and it kind of laughed he just went we wouldn't keep that 
you know what I mean? Why would I keep that? Like he was just like I was, it's like I was like 20, 21. He was just like, I'm not going to keep that. And he goes, and he goes, and he thought about it actually a while, like uh, for a while actually. And he turned around and said, I probably did keep it. And my, you know, my dad's quite meticulous actually uh, in keeping certain things anyway. He always, I think it's the engineering in me keeps the instructions for everything. You know, even if it's an appliance that we don't own anymore. Um, but it's <laughs> it it's funny because you know he he probably did keep it is what he said for a while. And he probably moved around the world because we know he's, you know, he was in the yeah, army, moved around the world. And he said that he probably just lost it in a house move, to be honest, mm. in the end. Um, but you know what I mean? I think that's a, an interesting touch actually about your particular story with, with that watch is the fact that you have everything, you know, and yeah. it's not even like it's a reissue. It's the original bits um, yeah. that came with it. Absolutely. And I think it, there's a couple of pictures I've posted on that blog post as well of, mm -hmm. of some of those bits of um, sort of paraphernalia, if you will, around the yeah. edges. And the receipt is in staggeringly good condition. I mean, it is as flat as flat. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not like it's been scrumpled it up. It, it was it beautifully is. folded and yeah. kept in a corner. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. so um, there's that as a standout piece in my collection for sort of obvious reasons. Um, what else have I got that sort of stands out? I've got a couple of dive pieces. As you know, I sort of took up diving last yeah. year. Um, I, obviously, we're slightly different uh, uh, diver affiliations. So you're BSAC and I'm Paddy. Um, yeah. Same gig there, you get to go diving, which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of brought a bit more focus around into dive watches for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I've got a... Um, one I'm particularly fond of is a sort of the Seiko limited edition um, ceramic black uh, little, they did like a trio. It was like a yeah. quartz chrono, um, a turtle, which was obviously mechanical and the third one that escapes me, but I got the turtle anyway. I call it the stealth turtle. Mm -hmm. um, but I just particularly like because it's a black watch, I guess. Um, and I've taken it diving quite a few times. Um, mm -hmm. So that one sort of stands out for me. Um, anything else? Oh, and I've got obviously the watch that you helped source for me um, indirectly because my other oh, half is yes. trying to surprise me, which you might yes. recall, um, which is a rather beautiful Omega. Um, I keep switching between Omega and Omega. I don't know which one to say. I'll just say whichever comes out of my mouth at the time. But my Omega CK2292, which was mm -hmm. a was issued to both the RAF and the Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm. Mm -hmm. um, mine's a Fleet Air Arm piece, so it's an HS8 stamped on the back mm -hmm. with the broad arrow, um, which uh, was, we got the Amiga, Omega <laughs> um, mm -hmm. certificate of authenticity that you can send off to the archives and they find out stuff about your watch. It was built in April 1941. Very cool. Very cool. Um, hold a uh, sort of prominent place in my collection because of a surprised by my other half very kindly for it um b obviously she came to you to help find <laughs> help find a good example which you sneakily did <laughs> yeah it was um it, was, it felt like a lot of responsibility on that one actually <laughs> it's just like ah you know like and I, you know, like i said this is you know a year and a bit ago you know and, and as we know those things are very hard to come by in the condition uh, that that we well actually you know your other half did do a lot of the, the 
listing research as it were you know and it was just more the finite detail in terms of is this does this look correct from my side um yeah. but you know the example that she she found for you and obviously uh, gifted you is is in staggering condition for like you said the age and potentially what that watch has seen or you know being at because obviously we'll never we'll never know what these watches have done unless we actually speak to the individual who who wore them you know mm. at the end of the day all we know is that it has an issue marking and like you said in your case, you've got the arc, uh, the certificate from the Amiga archives to state, you know, when it was made and who it went to. But you know, other than that, like you said, unless you've got um, an actual account from the individual who wore it, it's all surmising, isn't it, on what it could have done. Um, but needless to say, for the age, even if it didn't do anything and sat in stores um, for for all those years, uh, the condition that it is is it that it is in is fantastic. So, mm. yeah. So that's that's. Um probably my sort of prominent listed items, I mm -hmm. suppose, including well, the most recent purchase. What, what about your uh, your Chernobyl watch? My Chernobyl? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> so uh, a watch that you turned me on to, um, which is the Elliot Brown um, Holton Professional, which I sort of didn't realise was a thing. And you sort mm -hmm. of brought it to my attention probably around the time of uh, world time. Um, yes. I think that was the first time I actually sort of had, uh, seen it. I um, picked up a Holton Professional, which is the quartz version, um, which uh, I took to on a trip to Chernobyl, as you rightly say. Mm. Um, slightly odd holiday um, in some people's minds, but a, quite a cool one in mine. I've always been quite yeah. fascinated with the whole Chernobyl thing. Obviously, relatively young. Um, the there was a series of computer games that got sort of brought out that were kind of loosely based around the whole sort of Chernobyl thing called Stalker. Um, and subsequently, I've always had a bit of a fascination with it. But anyway, Naomi and I went to um, went to uh, Kiev and then took a trip up to Chernobyl. And I wore my Elliot Brown Holton Professional throughout the trip, which was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So we got went into Pripyat explored Pripyat in blistering heat of something like 32 degrees went inside a lot of buildings the tour guide company it was quite funny when we were going up there on the uh, minibus said um since 20 something or other it's been illegal to go inside any buildings within the chernobyl zone um in, mm. within the exclusion zone we will violate this rule <laughs> <laughs> and you're like was, oh great yeah <laughs> Cool. No, I was looking forward to it. Um, so we got to go inside, you know, some of the buildings that I don't know if you've ever done any gaming much, but the old Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, there was a whole bit set around Pripyat, yeah. the Ferris wheel, the swimming pool, mm -hmm. all that stuff. So I got to go and see the swimming pool firsthand, saw nice. the Ferris wheel firsthand. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, wore that watch throughout. So that's uh, it's also been diving with me quite a few times as well. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, very useful watch that one. That does that watch now glow with the power of Chernobyl or is it still super luminova? <laughs> still super luminova. Um, the visiting job is Chernobyl is safer than the perception of ours. Mm. Um, you carry a, we went on a two day trip and we stayed overnight in Chernobyl, the town itself, which mm -hmm. is about uh, 15 kilometers away from the Chernobyl power plant. Mm -hmm. um, we got exposure during the entire two days to less radiation than we got on the flight to Kiev. Nice. 
Impressive. So, there you go, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a really cool place to go and see. If anyone wants to go and do it, do it sooner rather than later. There's sort of talk of the Ukraine government making it a uh, genuine tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, although the recent news that they're detecting um, uh, neutron emissions from the power plant might change that. Mm-hmm. Um, they've the scientists have been detecting lots of behavior going on in some of the closed off rooms that nobody have been able to visit since the disaster um and ironically the old crappy concrete sarcophagus that used to let rainwater in might mm. have actually been keeping that under control so they've put the new arc over the top of it that is now properly waterproof and they're having this problem with reaction going on because <laughs> oh. the water's not there to cool it so there you go um but yeah go and see it sooner rather than later before the you know pripyat some of the buildings are sort of getting quite uh sort of corroded and decrepit um, before before Pripyat melts into the ground is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. and bef- and before it becomes a proper tourist attraction, at which point sit- fencing will go up. There'll be a lot more limitations on what you can go and do and see. Yeah, and, and um, the implied uh, increased cost, shall we say? Yeah, do. absolutely. I mean, it's it, prepare yourself for some pretty grim food while you're in the zone. Yeah, of <laughs> so, course. Some, something certainly mentally to prepare yourself for. Um, but you know, you get to see some pretty cool stuff like a secret soviet military installation of the time in the cold war for example still exists in the exclusion zone they blew all the others up they had several of these big radar dishes that they they sort of demolished through explosions but thought maybe that would be a bad idea in a zone mm-hmm. with lots of radiation in the ground so that still stands um which we climbed up which was a little bit naughty but there you go you don't get to climb up yeah, it's pretty cool. Sounds like a, a, an adventurous holiday. And you seem to have picked a watch as well, which uh, obviously is fitting, given the fact that, you know, it's, it's it, you know, Elliot Brown watches are made to be worn for that kind of stuff. And, you know, made to be worn without caring is probably, probably mm. a good way to describe it. Um, and I've, I've, I've worn it, as I say, doing that whole thing, diving quite a few times, and you'd never know. That mm. it hasn't just come out of a box yeah it's incredible incredibly robust and well made mm. have you not managed to get down to elliot brown yet because i know you met them at world time but you still haven't managed to get down to the headquarters have you no no i've not had the sort of opportunity to really i very briefly met them at um at world time but sort of didn't as, as you know it was quite a sort of run around and see everything fest mm-hmm. um so i never really got much time to build a relationship with them it'd be good to get down there sometime maybe but um yeah i haven't had the chance so far well the uh, as we know obviously the world is slowly opening up as it were and uh, things are returning to normal um i'm sure you can uh, you know spin something up they're always they're they're very much like Bremen. i think it's just british watch brands in general from my experience are very welcoming um, and very mm. happy to host people who want to know more about obviously yeah. them, as, them as a company, which is always good. Um, so obviously we spoke about your state collection and, and, and highlights in, in, in there. Um, we've hinted at your blog. Um, so I just want to obviously talk about a little bit about that as well. I mean, admittedly, guys, it's kind of a little bit, um, you know, self advertising on there as well, because I've I have written on, on James's blog. Um, but what was you know, for the audience, what was your proviso behind obviously writing it and, and, and starting it? Because um, 
from my experience of it, you know, and, and the way that we've both written articles on there, it is very much, um, from my point of view anyway, and, and the stuff I've written, it's very much on trying to write stuff that is um, something interesting, but and but obviously not along the lines that you see on Hudinki and a blog to watch. And I never wanted to write about stuff that you see in terms of like main releases. I only ever wanted to write about watches that were in my collection. Um, yeah, I think um, the, the sort of whole idea behind it, I sort of started building up a bit of a Instagram following to start with. Um, and I just sort of, this this passion for watches is, is, is quite a sort of infectious thing and it builds within you a little bit. And I wanted to sort of write down some pieces about, you know, bits in my collection, um, obviously invited you to do the same and try and avoid being journalistic really mm -hmm. um too much um there are a couple of kind of review pieces in there but there, it's kind of like here's a watch i own i quite like it here's what i think about it have a read and take away your own thoughts from yeah. it. trying to give as much information as possible but not in a scenario where you see so many watch blogs and websites where nine times out of ten someone's paid for that article to be written yeah. And subsequently, the objectivity and um, the conflict of interest there, um, I think, you know, leaves a lot to be desired. Um, so I've never been asked to write an article um, for anything. Um, to be fair, I haven't actually had much of a chance to update it. So obviously, my position um, in the sort of business that I work in through the pandemic i've been a rather busy boy <laughs> trying to make sure the business can stay running um so it's probably been a little while since i've written something on there but you know it's like you say a chance to get something down on paper virtual paper if you will about um a piece that you own like the, my great grandfather's piece um a particularly sort of meaning like i wrote an article on my youtube jet because i'm sort of particularly fond of that i bought that as a present to myself for my 40th birthday um and just trying to give something people can read without feeling like they're having something shoved down their neck um that they can just walk away from and take from what they will yeah and I, I also like the fact that there's, like I said, there's more of an emotional connection because not only have you written about your own watches, but you've written about some like unique ones. And like I said, the, the highlight for me, um, in because I mean, I can't highlight my own uh, articles because that's very self-fulfilling, but um, it is your um, hand, handed down Amiga. I think that article mm -hmm. is just, like you said, I've not read an article like that on any other watch blog. Um, and I think that's what makes it stand out. So hopefully now that the world is, like you said, um, returning to some semblance of what is considered, I guess, a new normal, hopefully we'll both be able to uh, spend some more time in actually writing some more articles. Um, I, th I don't know about you, but I find it quite therapeutic actually sometimes writing uh, articles. Um, yeah. But that's just me. I agree. I think it's... Um... Yeah, sometimes sort of sitting down, forming how you're going to sort of lay out the article in your mind, sort of putting putting the words down, realizing that you've made mm -hmm. a pig's ear of it, reorganizing things, you know, just sort of going through that process is quite enjoyable. Um, I think for, for the listeners, you know, obviously Dan's refusing to talk about any of his own articles, but there is a fantastic article on there about Dan's um, Vietnam sort of Seiko piece. Uh, sort of micro collection he's got um, within his sort of vintage uh, sort of build up 
and that's a great article as well really goes into some depth and i think that's probably the article on the blog site that's attracted the most comments from people actually asking questions yeah yeah um i actually talking about that and i thought i'd bring this up because i didn't think you'd bring up the 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 seiko article but i actually got a message from spencer klein um about the the um the maccabee sog seikos um uh i mean it's from from what i can tell is he's clearly either really really busy or just uh gets loads of messages about watches and i I have a feeling it's probably a bit both um Mm. but he got back to me about it and i i sent him a message ages ago and it was actually on a uh, it's on a topic which could be considered quite vulgar in terms of watch collecting and it's always the whole what is this worth because i need to insure it um (laughs) And it was a genuine question. I was just like, look, I mean, how how much should I look to insure these things for? Because fundamentally, there's not many of them. Um, it's a difficult thing to insure when you go to a company and you explain what they are, because like you said, fundamentally, they're not anything really special, unless you know. Um, but he had an off-the-cuff comment back to me, and he said that he... You know, and he's probably considered one of the, you know, um, touch points on on vintage Seiko in general, but in touch points in terms of those watches. And he um, he said he's actually very, he's unaware of any more than two or three people in the world who may, and it was in May, have all three. Um, wow. Even even he, he even he admits he doesn't own all three anymore. He, wow. he has since broken up his uh, trio, as he were. He did have the, the Seiko triple, as it were, at one point, and he, he sold them on um obviously because he is a vintage dealer you know that is is his job um but also i mean he must have seen the major i think he's seen the majority of them that have come through um at some point or in some guys you know Mm. which is interesting um but yeah no it's uh that's that's just a complete you know rabbit hole side side note um after what you said there but uh i appreciate the kind words on the uh on that article um like I said, it's, it's interesting to see how those watches are getting a little bit more traction in the last couple of years, actually. Um, mm. Obviously, I've had the pleasure of actually sort of meeting them, as it were, when you brought them yeah. to the World Time for us to have a look at. Mm. They're um, really, really nice and interesting and, as you say, quite unique collection to have. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, do have a go go and have a read of uh, Dan's article because it's um it's a it's a really interesting sort of piece on on those three watches and and sort of what what sort of things they might have gotten up to and uh, mm. and how you came sort of to get hold of them from recollection. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's I think the closest thing I've we've done to a sort of really journalistic article on, article on there was covering the World Time event to a little extent. Yeah. Um, yeah. just to sort of let people know that it exists really because it's mm-hmm. a very cool cool little event. Um, which don't have many of in the uk um, no that no, sort we don't. of thing in fact um, you know what i think we should probably talk about world time because we've both been there and i think it's a good time to start wetting people's whistles on it really um so i mean i'll take it from my point of view and then obviously you you can jump in whenever you want but uh world time was set up by um a gentleman called andreas um who um is a vintage dealer um, out in Cyprus, and he's also an AD for um, certain watches such as Squale and, and Ralph Tech and other, uh, I would call them micro brands is probably the best way to describe them, or technical watches. He does a lot of diving watches and, and mm. stuff. Um, but he set up um, a, a group on Facebook called 
Divers Watches Facebook group. Um, it's the largest watch group um, in on Facebook, um, as in, oh, it's a closed group. Yeah. And that's what he, that's what you're saying. I think it's got something like forty-four thousand members across the world, um, and in in. I, and spin-off of that is effectively um, they have watch get-togethers in quite a few of the large countries where there is a con large conglomerate of people who are a member of that. Um, obviously, you're invited to post um, stuff on the Facebook group because they obviously operate on Facebook, hence the name. Um, but they also run competitions, monthly competitions where you can win stuff. And it's all to do with photography and just sharing your experience with watches. Um, at the back of that, the UK get-together is known as World Time. Uh, it's hosted in Heathrow um, in, in, I think, like I said, I think it's always been September uh, off the top of my head, um, or at least the end of summer into September time. Um, that's about right, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's Sofitel Hotel, isn't it, which is sort of attached to Heathrow. Yeah. And because of that, what's really good is obviously it enables brands who aren't in UK, because as we know, we have a very small uh, British watchmaking presence, really. And I think I can name the majority of uh, British watch brands, you know, mainstream watch brands on probably on one hand. Um, so obviously we, the World Time event relies on the travel, as it were, of, of uh, brands to UK. And I think that's why they chose it. Um, but also, um, as we've stated, the the footprint of the group is international and it enables people to travel um, to the point where I was actually invited to the Divers Watchers Facebook group, long title, Nicosia get together a few years ago. Um, oh, unfortunately, right. I was actually uh, not in Cyprus at the time with work or for leisure. Um, so I was unable to go. But, you know, it, I think that's what's different about the Divers Watchers Facebook group and that that you know, uh, part of watch forums and watch fam, as it were, is the fact that, you know, that there are events and you're invited just through association of being on that page. And I think that's quite good. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed the event. I've been to two. Um, I believe you've only been to the one because you went to the second one with me uh, yeah. and we met up, we met up there. Um, but what did you, I mean, what did you think of it? Because like I said, you know, I've described it to other people where you just kind of say, well, they rent a space and there's just watches everywhere you know and, and people <laughs> people people are like what you know and, and i tell my, my my you know i've told my colleagues in the past i'm going to london for an event and they think are oh, you going on the on the piss it's like yeah we're gonna get drunk and they're like cool or you know at least have some drinks you're like, oh, okay cool what are you doing we're actually staring at things that tell the time yeah. and they're like what, what you know what i mean and then you add in the fact that you, and then you go and it's at heathrow airport and they're like what this is weird you know yeah i think there are um there's a a few sort of mini mini ish events in the states that it's comparable to i guess and there seem to be a few of those that have run obviously you know pro in the in the before times um before the sort of plague came along i think uh it was it was a really cool little event it so it's at the sofitel hotel um in heathrow and they sort of rent out an area of the hotel you rock up um and there's lots of micro booths is i think mm. is the way you describe it and by micro booth i mean it's a bit like for those of us in the UK, you know, imagine going to a, an old jumble sale in a, in a village hall. And it's, it's a table with mm. a brand name on it and a whole bunch of watches that you get to go and look at. Um, and the brands were quite broad in mm. variety. Um, the one that I obviously went to that you were at as well, for example, you had Bremont next to 
Formex next mm. to Elliot Brown. Um, mm. Walk around the corner a little bit further and you've got um, uh, Sin were mm-hmm. just around the corner. And then um, Christopher Ward was in the opposite corner, for example. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Quite, quite a lot of brands turning up with you know, some key sort of centerpieces from their collections and so on, where you get to handle watches you probably wouldn't otherwise get to handle too much, mm-hmm. um, which is quite a nice sort of aspect to it. No pressure to buy anything from anybody there. Um, and some really big brands down to some, you know, much smaller brands um, who are sort of, you know, really finding their feet. Uh, one example being Olkin watches. I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember that. That's yeah, I remember Olkin. Um, who's like a one-man band from Bristol, who um, I, is another article I wrote about um, their watch that I purchased from them because I, I fell in love with one of the they, – they had their Model 1, as they mm-hmm. call it, which I quite liked but felt the lugs were a little bit long for me. And he was sort of showing off his Model 2 prototypes, um, which is a, a sort of compressor-style dive watch, I guess. Um, interior sort of rotating bezel, which – having done diving feels a little bit useless to me. Um, but it's quite a nice idea and aesthetically very pleasing. Um, fell in love with that watch and kept pestering the guy saying, when can I get one? When can I get one? Um, and eventually got one and wrote an article about it. Cause I, I just absolutely, I think it's a fantastic watch for the money. So you, you've got this sort of really wide variety in the mm. room. And of course, Andreas, as you say, is there sort of walking around, talking to people, um, CWC were there as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, they so were. They, they, they had a pretty decent, um, decent stand. Nice bar in the middle, so you could sit down and yep. have a beer. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and obviously, good. and and the restaurants were open as well. And I, th- I found what was nice is, like you said, you had the event with, like you said, all the stores and the tables and the brands. You know, there was things being given out for free. There was always mm-hmm. gizits. There was freebies. There was a competition. But then also, like you said, as the evening went on, you could dip in and out because it wasn't ticketed. Mm-hmm as it were, you know what I mean? You could just dip in and out. You could go to the other bar down the, down the hall. You could go get something to eat. You could break off with, you know, people that you'd met to talk about watches. And like you said, and people also tip up with their own watches, you know, and you got to see what they brought in, uh, which was another benefit, wasn't it? So. Yeah. So I think it's a really cool, varied event with watches from, who was that German company was there with their sort of massive dive watches that was really interesting it wasn't ralph tech it was some german no it wasn't it was yeah and there was another one was like Helbros and zelos and stuff like that that's Um, right yeah so there was some really cool interesting variety of stuff that there'll be a bunch of stands you've heard of but maybe never had a chance yeah There'll be yeah. a bunch of stands where you think, well, who the hell are these guys? And you get to stand there and talk to them about who the hell they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, it's just a really nice environment filled with people who get watches and are as mm-hmm. nerdy as you are about watches. <laughs> so you don't feel, yeah. you know, sort of too self-conscious about it. Um, and yeah, I think it's, I mean, as you say, Andreas is a slightly because you know him from Cyprus, obviously it's like another sort of off-the-cuff off relationship between us was that I was spending a lot of time working in Cyprus when mm-hmm. we met, I think. Yes. Um, so I went to go and see Andreas at his shop in local time. Yeah. Really nice guy. Really knows his stuff about old Amigas. Um, he obviously, as you say, has he's an AD for some of those brands you talked about, but he's also an old-school diver. So some of the mm-hmm. stuff he's got in his um, 
in his sort of display cabinets he uses as sort of display paraphernalia if you will to sort of mount the watches on and what have you he's got some massive old torches that he actually used to when he went diving mm-hmm. and things. so yeah really nice guy really knowledgeable bloke um has some interesting pieces up on his website um yes. local time so he's always worth having a sort of dip in to see what he might have on offer because he, he yeah, gets some, some very interesting pieces in there um and yeah just the fact that he's built this facebook group to be the size that it is i don't i don't use facebook to uh, facebook too much just a bit to go on groups um and i don't i'm more of a passive sort of um consumer mm-hmm. of that group than i am an active one it's amazing that he's managed to build this sort of global awareness yeah. of of through a Facebook group into a something that turns into an actual event. I think it's yeah definitely yeah. well worth visiting. Yeah, no, I I agree. And also on a side note with Andreas, he's actually moved premises. He's moved to a, a different street. He's closer in into the high street, as it were, which is quite nice for him. And he's got a new shop. And um, it's again, it, it's just his personality is everywhere in that, and it's, it's good to see. Um, and even with, you know, the obvious, like you said, the, 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 the pandemic and all of that issues that everyone has faced, it, it's good to see um, him doing well as well, yeah. which is always good. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's it, like you said, in terms of his, the pieces he gets in are, are unique. And also he's very knowledgeable. He's got a very good uh, watch servicing center or servicing mm. team or individual, a couple of individuals behind him who are very good and you know he takes the time and uh to do things right and Mm. also i've never in in terms of buying from him because i have bought from him you know and this isn't me now just talking as a friend this is me talking i guess as a as a customer as a client he's um a very honest you know he he markets his stuff honestly and and and, you know and he does his research and he does you know he'll stand by you as well even though it's a vintage watch i um the, the best watch I've ever picked up from him um, is is my uh, little World War II um, Army timepiece, my ATP watch, which is really cool. And the condition of that is on par with your um, Amiga. Actually, mm. it's I, I've never I've not seen a ATP with a dial as clean as that um, ever, really in person, to be honest. So. Yeah, I, 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 fortunately, I got to nip out to Cyprus sort of in between lockdowns mm-hmm. last year for a diving trip. Um, so we made a point of going to see him in Nicosia and he, he was he was there with his mask on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, doing doing his thing still, which was good to see. Cyprus actually did quite well through the lockdown, I think. Um, they locked down very quickly, didn't they? So yes, they, they did. They got control of the situation. It was a smaller population to control. But yeah, got to got to pop out and see him and, and did some... Um, fun diving while I was out there. So I got to go down to, which always makes me amused when you're thinking about sort of meterage measurements on dive watches. I got to go down to a fairly astonishing, like 29 meters mm-hmm. in my advanced open water. Um, your deep diver takes you to 40 meters. Mm-hmm. You know, dive watches are, you know, the S2000 yeah. is 2000 meters and, and yeah, you, yeah. you know, dive watches are supposedly 200 meters i think is the iso standard yeah standard. Um, i took my Seiko samurai actually on that trip um mm. and went sort of diving in that one which was pretty cool and we di- dived on the zenobia wreck nice which if anyone doesn't know what the zenobia wreck is uh last time i googled it it was in the top 10 uh dive wrecks to, to right, do in the yeah. world so and um, yeah the zenobia is a, a car carrier ferry that that sank off uh, the coast up in uh, the northern part of cyprus um if you're a diver go do it if you're not a diver 
uh, go get the boat tour that goes over the top of it. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. You talk about obviously, you know, that you know, astonishing 29 meters comparative to the water resistance rating on your watches. Uh, and it's, it's 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 funny, isn't it? We talk about you know, people get very passionate about water resistance on on, on watches and. Uh, fundamentally, you know, the deepest it'll ever go to is in the bath or the kitchen sink, uh, which is always quite funny. But um, um, what is interesting, talk about how, you know, deep and how well, I guess, ISO rated divers are in terms of watches, it's quite interesting. You know, you say how the S2000 is 2000 meters uh, water resistant. Um, going back to Elliot Brown, and it's on their website, and I've spoken to Ian and Alex about it, and I've actually seen the watch as well. So if you eventually get to go down and see them, they'll they'll probably pull this out for you to see as an interest point piece. Is they dropped a Halton down to 1900 meters before it stopped working, and it <laughs> didn't stop working because it water ingress it stopped working because the pressure on the case and the crystal was so great it pushed the crystal onto the center pinion of the hands and that yeah. pressure stopped the watch from working so random um sort of link point to a channel that i watch every now and then on youtube called uh, the hydraulic press channel mm. which is run by a completely mad finnish guy um i think he's finnish um and his wife and they basically just smash stuff in the hydraulic press but one of the series of uh, things they've been doing is actually applying pressure to watches and seeing how mm -hmm. it takes them to break yeah. it's quite interesting they were putting them down to sort of like very deep depths in their pressure container watching it sort of stop the seconds hand because typically it wasn't through water ingress as you say it mm -hmm. was the it was either the case uh, case back compressing onto the movement in some way stopping it mm -hmm. or the front of it sort of compressing against the hands um and uh, they released the pressure slightly and they'd start going again yeah <laughs> which was quite interesting so that, that's that's a pretty cool channel for the listeners to check out home hydraulic press channel and search for their uh, sort of watch uh, chamber exercises where they do a variety of watches and see how much it takes to break them nice I'll have a I'll have a look. I'll uh, I'll, I'll uh, put that uh, link to that channel, particularly the watch ones, into into the show notes. There you go. So people can yeah. go and have a look. Um, in terms of watches then uh, in, and your collection, looking to the future, James, have you got any watches that have caught your eye uh, that you would look to get? Other than you know the the standard watch collectors answer of all of the watches. Uh, is there anything <laughs> is there anything that uh, stands out, or or is it the opposite where you know you're looking potentially to you know um, stick with the collection as it is, or you know potentially even you know heaven forbid uh, uh, thin some watches out? I think um, certainly thinning watches out doesn't seem to be on my mind in the slightest. Mm -hmm. um, as I was saying from before, I feel yeah. quite like. I've had a very good reason for buying all of the watches that I've bought and I don't feel inclined to sort of particularly get rid of any of them. Um, in terms of future watch purchases, I've definitely got my eye on an S2000. Mm -hmm. I really want to go diving with an S2000. Um, mm -hmm. I love that watch from the, you know, the townhouse where we met and I tried yeah. it on. I've always, as I say, it sort of, despite my wrists aren't, massive i mean obviously they're bigger than your wrists but you know that's uh, pretty uh, much true of every human my body. my wrists well well, well my <laughs> wrists are in perfect proportion to my to my height which if you don't know 
I am six foot eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just it, you know, it's like some big watches wear small. Dan's a very small six foot eight. Um, exactly. I think. <laughs> um, so I think an S two thousand certainly on the list out there. And another watch that's caught my eye, and for no particular reason other than I just think it's a really cool watch, is the Snoopy Speedmaster fiftieth with um, Snoopy flying around the moon on the case back. I am really glad that you mentioned Amiga again um, because I really want to add a Hesselite Speedmaster in the of the 13OG1 or whatever it is, you know, the new coaxial Speedmaster. Mm. Um, but you're right, that new that Snoopy. If I had the money to buy that Snoopy edition uh, latest one, I would buy it and then I would wear it. So the case back was always on show just so I can see Snoopy <laughs> going around the moon. It's so cool. I find it, I mean, it's yeah. a bit gimmicky, obviously, but I think the, um, I just, for some reason it strikes a chord to me. I think um, the Amiga Speedmaster range in particular, I find fairly baffling. There's so many of them, so many variants, so many limited editions, but the that particular 50th Snoopy, the fact that they've not made it a limited edition, yeah. albeit is out of stock everywhere at the moment and people are paying ridiculous amounts of money for something that is definitely going to come back into stock mm -hmm. i just think it's a really cool piece and it just stands out to me as something that's a bit different um yeah. so that's certainly something i've sort of kept half an eye out on and a future watch that i have in mind that doesn't exist yet is bremont's first own in-house movement watch i'm mm -hmm. really keen now obviously that is going to be I think they've made it pretty clear is that the, the, the initial first version of that, which is going to have some limited edition aspect to it, whether it's a historic limited edition mm -hmm. or not remains to be seen. But I personally feel like, you know, everyone talks about sort of the brand heritage side of things with, you know, oh, well, this brand has been around for this long and that long, mm. yeah, but they all started off from zero. Right? Of course. I think Bremont wind forward a few years is going to be a brand with some really decent heritage. Mm -hmm. um, I'd really like to own one of their in-house movement pieces when it comes out so that I feel like I've sort of invested in that journey, if you like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I get you with that. Um, I unfortunately don't think, like you said, any of the uh, special projects will, will have a limited movement uh in terms of you know in-house anytime soon but it would be interesting to see like you said ha that progression in terms of british watchmaking in general to see uh, in-house caliber movement as it were proper in-house caliber movement as well not the way that chris ward uh christopher ward the company not chris ward the human being uh did theirs um because i wouldn't really say that's an in-house movement when you buy the company that makes the movement after you tell them to make it but <laughs> You know, anyway, you get you get my point. It'd be interesting to see that, you know, come to fruition in any way. Um, yeah. So I can I, I can see why why you um, take that stance on that watch, because, uh, again, from my knowledge base, the last mass produced in-house movement was actually in the Smiths uh, W10 oh, wow. uh, in, yeah. in Britain, which obviously stopped being made in 1970, uh, yeah. those watches. So, so there you go. It's been a long time. And like you said, it's a shame as well. Like you said, I think. Uh, there was there would have been potential if it wasn't for the plague uh, for um, <laughs> that uh, watch to have come into fruition sooner as well. Uh, I remember we you know we've spoken about that a few times you know about you know 
is this the next townhouse event where they're going to announce it and all that kind of stuff and that um having yeah. visited the boutique um last week something's happening later this year mm-hmm. they don't know exactly what yet i think the the, the brothers are quite good at teasing the boutique mm-hmm. as they are anybody else yeah um so something's coming that's supposedly quite exciting later this year mm-hmm. um and allegedly the in-house movement should be later this year or next year mm-hmm. um from the sounds of things so yeah i think um keep your eyes on on what's happening with those guys towards the mm-hmm. back end of 2021 and mm-hmm. um yeah i think that would be pretty cool and i think like you know to your point of stuff being in-house and what's proper in-house you know rolex wasn't fully in-house until they bought a company that made a load of the parts for rolex of course. you know in yeah, yeah. 2014 yeah <laughs> so you know it's it's one of those things that i think you know the guys are going to get there um fairly imminently from the sound mm. of things and you know it's going to be like you say something that hasn't really happened on our shores for quite some time now. yeah uh, and like you said especially in a a mass comparatively anyway comparably mm. mass scale you know um because um who was i forget his name now george, george daniels is understudy roger smith yeah no. doesn't count when you are a single watch elf making a single watch like 10 100 uh, grand or whatever it is doesn't count mm. as a as a mass produced english watch you know i mean i get it it's an english watch you know it's handmade it's in-house i get it but it's not that level in terms of multiple watches at a considerable volume being made at a set you know specification all day every day you know yeah. um that's what's not happened um so yeah no it, w- it will be interesting uh, to see see that happen and it also the other side of it is is if you look at other watch brands as well like you know even other watch brands can't unless they're really big you know, um, they can't they can't even keep up that that kind of demand either. You know, I mean, if you look at going back to Amiga with the three twenty one movement um, Speedmasters, which they're getting obviously you know a single division to, of watchmakers to make specifically from the beginning to the end for each watch. You know, um, that shows you how in depth it takes to make those kind of movements when you you know have to send off an entire department just to specifically make that watch you know i think people forget that you know you know even large brands have to you know prioritize shall we say in terms of like you said movement sourcing to an extent you know um and the way they go around it and i think like you said i think a lot of people get a bit you know precious about what is in-house and what isn't so Hmm. But anyway, that's that's just my two pence on that. Yeah. Um, before we move on to traditional closing notes, James, um, obviously, uh, where where can the list, listeners find you um, on, on on the gram, as it were? Um, <laughs> on the gram, yeah, sure. So I'm at just two ticks. So just two, the number two ticks. Yeah, um, is my Instagram handle. So um, yeah come and check me out i post pictures of my watches and stuff i get mm-hmm. to wear if i happen to pop into like boutiques and stuff um sort of try and keep up with that and obviously at just2ticks.com mm-hmm. is the url for the blog that obviously dan's kindly written some articles for and um i've put a few pieces on and hopefully we'll get back to a little bit more there's certainly a few articles on there that um it would be good you know to see some people go and read and so, you know give us some feedback yeah. on for sure drop some stuff in the comments and um 
yeah, I think that's pretty much it from some from where to find me online, I guess. Cool. Happy days, and uh, yeah, um, I'll, like I said, I'll link you in, in in on the show notes as well. But yeah, guys, go go check out James's photography. Uh, he does very good watch photography, um, and obviously, like I said, it, if you're only going to read one article uh, that's on there, and like I said, I'm not going to mention mine. Uh, please go read the story about James's uh, heirloom Amiga because it's just fantastic. Um, Closing notes, James. As you're the guest, we're going to start with your closing notes. What have we got for the audience today? Okay, so um, sort of knocking back to my sort of interest in sort of various things, military, and obviously we talked about the sort of Vietnam side of things, which I've always been interested in as a conflict um, from both the aviation and the ground war side of things. It's a series of three books, which is readily, readily available um, in sort of paper or Kindle edition on um, Amazon. It's uh, Six Silent Men, which is a three-part um, book written by actual long-range recon uh, patrol soldiers who operated in six-man teams way behind enemy lines in Vietnam, doing all sorts of you know mind-blowing um, uh, sort of reconnaissance slash. Uh, interdiction almost missions at times you know sort of sabotaging and sort of attacking with well-placed artillery behind enemy lines there's there's three books each written by a member of the lerps as they refer to themselves um absolutely fascinating read mind-boggling stories of just complete mad you know bravery um and skill um Mm -hmm. in field craft in map reading in you know, just holding one's nerve in mm-hmm. mind-blowingly terrifying situations. So that's uh, my sort of recommendation for three three really good books that are worth reading. Um, that can lead you down a whole spider web if there's quite a few books by these authors and um, nearby. Uh, so one of the pilots they reference who dropped them off and picked them up in some really hairy instances as well has written a book which is available um and it's quite interesting to hear the same conflict or areas of conflict through people that were there and seeing how their recollections join up and obviously where their missions were slightly different how they sort of diverge from each other really really good set of books so that's my Mm -hmm. first um closing note um i'm unwatch related and my second one uh, also unwatch related is a, a podcast i sort of got into not too long ago which is called What the Fuck? So it's WTF um, with Mark Moron, who is a American comedian um, slash actor. And he interviews all manner of people through, um, he interviewed uh, Barack Obama, through to stand-up comedians, through to Hollywood A-list sort of celebrities. But he doesn't just talk about the film they've just brought out or the book they've just brought out. He gets really into, where did you come from? What did you do as a kid? How did that influence you and all the rest of it? Mm -hmm. So he's got some really cool and interesting, sometimes it will be people where you don't recognize the name. And then he Mm -hmm. references what they've done. You think, oh, that person. Um, But also there's other people he's interviewed in there, like Jim Carrey and people like that, where you just totally know who it is. But it's... I just find it really interesting to listen to. And he has a bit of spiel at the beginning and at the end, and he usually bangs out some blues on the guitar at the end of the episode, which is kind of funky. Um, but yeah, just something a bit different, quite funny to listen to and, and just fascinating to hear 
a different interviewing sort of approach than you'd normally hear when you're sort of listening to that kind of thing. Nice. Yeah. And it sounds like easy listening as well. And like I said, if it's a bit of comedy in there and like you said, if there's a, a variety of um, interviewees, um, you know, like I said, it, it seems to be one of those where you don't necessarily have to dip in and listen to every episode. You can just dip yeah. in to listen to the ones that of the individuals that you are interested on, which is... I mean, he's, he's know, been doing it for a long time. I think he's up to a thousand and something episodes now. I, I aspire to be up to a thousand <laughs> episodes. Uh, yeah, guys, you guys are going to be stuck with me for a while. <laughs> um but yes um no I'll, I'll i'll definitely check out as well i uh as you know i travel a lot so i um i, I get through a lot of podcasts and a lot of podcast episodes uh mainly because they're free um <laughs> my my uh, closing notes i've got one that is loosely watch related um but not really um and then i've got one that is caffeine related and one that is uh fitness related which is um, really good. So um, I'll start with the one that's loosely watch related. We've got um, obviously a charity, uh, it's on Instagram, uh, Rock to Recovery, set up by Jason Fox. Um, and um, they've recently done, uh, obviously they, they, they do what they do, um, which is obviously instill a, a different set of mindfulness as it were, and you know, and mental health awareness, and then uh, through physical adversity, adversity and all that kind of going on and challenging yourself in, in various different ways. Um, Rock to Recovery has just done a collaboration, uh, t-shirt collaboration in support, um, well, say in support of, so um, Elliot Brown has just done a t-shirt collaboration in support of Rock to Recovery. Um, and it's a non-profit uh, t-shirt. Um, I like the design personally, so I've gone and bought it. But even if you don't like the design, I would encourage you probably to buy it anyway because it supports the charity. And you know who doesn't like supporting charity where where you can. Um, and I feel that obviously in uh, this current climate, uh, I think um, charities need money. Uh, because effectively they've not received the same level of income as they would do normally in a well, a comparatively to the world pre-corona. Um, so um, go check out Rock to Recovery and go support them. Um, caffeine related, uh, we've got Cannonball Coffee Company. It seems that um, if you're in the British military, uh, it's uh, pretty standard now for you to set up your own caffeine company, which is quite good. Um, but yes, go check out Cannonball Coffee Company. They're, they're uh, very similar, uh, obviously, to other veteran-owned and you know military-owned coffee companies. Um, but they're particularly um, good uh, if you're located in the southwest of England, because um, they've spent a long time in the southwest of England due to the nature of the British Army. Um, so they're quite local to me. Um, I would suggest um, a particular blend, which also ties into my third and final um, closing note, which is Southern Quarter. So Karen, Cannibal Coffee Company have done a Southern Quarter blend, uh, and Southern Quarter are a will be a, um, a CrossFit gym. Uh, again, based in the southwest, just outside uh, of Salisbury. Um, they uh, were affiliated to another uh, veteran-owned CrossFit company um, and gym, uh, which we all, we all, the majority of listeners will know is obviously HR4K. Um, but yeah, go go check all three of those out. Um, there is a veteran 
um, spin on that in terms of, you know, veteran owned businesses and all that kind of stuff. Um, but hopefully the idea of, you know, a charitable element and a fitness element. And then as we all know, we're all caffeine addicts. Um, it, you know, it's, it's always a good thing. So please go check out those uh, closing notes for myself. And then obviously uh, for those interested in the Vietnam War, as, as I am, uh, I will definitely be buying um, the Six Silent Men series as well as listening to another podcast on my on my journeys. Um, I've got nothing else for you in this episode. Uh, James, uh, thank you very much for um, allowing me to take up your time this evening and coercing you onto your first podcast interview. Um, I hope it hasn't scared you off to, to do other podcast interviews where, where you're asked. Um, and I hope it was an enjoyable experience for you. Um, look forward to all the various DMs about your watch collection and other things to do with the watch fam from, from the audience. Um, if you've got nothing else to say, mate, um, that's the episode. We're complete. Yeah, that's it for me. Um, yeah, thank, thanks very much, Dan. It's been, it's been a pleasure. So uh, thanks for having me on. Happy days. Right, guys. Until then, next episode, take care and I'll see you later.